Revelation 21. Let's pray before we go into God's Word. Father God, we thank you so much for your Word. It is light, it is holy, it is life, it is true. And God, I ask that you just reveal that to us today. Speak to us through it. I submit myself to you, your willing vessel. Lord, speak through me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. If you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of the Word of God? Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had seven vials full of seven last plagues. And he talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And it had a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the walls thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. And the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, a hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. And the building of the wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones, the first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third, um, that's a funny word, chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprasus, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, verse 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and every, uh, several, every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord Almighty and the Lamb of God was the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there will be no uh, in no wise enter into it the thing that defileth, neither whosoever worketh abomination or, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, crystal clear, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the streets of it and on either side of it, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were of the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. And his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. 
and they need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord giveth uh, them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. It's a lot of scripture to read, but I wanted you to get the picture. That is the new Jerusalem that is being described, the kingdom of heaven, as it were, that is fully come. We have been in a series on our blessed hope, talking about what's coming in heaven, and this week I want to get down to the, the brass tacks of it, if you will, uh, what, what John has to say in Revelation about the, the holy city and about the new, new creation, New Jerusalem. Last week I did my best to present to you the continuity of this world and this life into the next. When Jesus comes again and, and remakes the universe, the new heavens and the new earth, and we are given resurrection bodies. We're going to be known as we are known now. We will have physical bodies. These bodies, they'll just be new and stronger and healthier and better and everlasting bodies. We'll live on a physical earth. We'll live on this earth. Just remade, brand new, resurrected, recreated earth. In Revelation 21.5, just a few verses before our text that we read this morning, Jesus said, Behold, I make all things new. He remakes them. He makes them brand new. The earth and all of creation, it eagerly awaits our resurrection. Because when we are resurrected into our new bodies that are free from the curse, the resurrection and the, the rest of creation will be resurrected in just, man, just like manner as we are. There'll be, it'll be free and, and better and pristine and glorious, displaying for the master his craftsmanship, displaying for all the universe his craftsmanship of the Creator God. All things new, this earth, but better. Familiar, but different. It'll be like waking up from a vivid dream, and all the things in your dream will be there in reality. It'll be like you've finally gotten home after a long trip. Everything you saw, everything you touched, all the joy that you experienced, every treat that you tasted, every song that you sang, those are just shadows of the, the real thing that's awaiting for us when we wake up. We see mountains now and we can appreciate their beauty and their, their majesty. But on the new earth, heaven, the mountains will, will radiate the glory of God. They will be beauty. They won't just show beauty. They will be beauty. They, they'll be majesty, radiating it for the glory of God. Every stone, every blade of grass, every, every petal on a flower, every leaf in a tree will display in radiant glory the awesomeness of God. And they'll do it unhindered by the curse. Unhindered by death and decay, unhindered by sin, unencumbered by any of that. Free to express awesomeness for God. Amen. To worship the Creator, all creation, fully and brilliantly doing what creation was made to do, to give glory to God. You know, gardens, we'll have gardens in, in heaven there was a garden in Eden. There will be gardens in heaven. And you know what? When, when, when plants grow and, and they produce, they'll produce fruit and vegetables as worship, it, it'll be the best fruit Amen. you've Amen. ever... The fruit will be sweeter than you've ever tasted, Amen. more nutritious than you've ever... Vegetables will grow for the glory of God. Amen. Can you imagine 
tomatoes, the red ripe tomatoes. The, the tomatoes blooming on the plant will be blooming as worship, as worship to God. The flower, when it opens, the rose, when it opens, as worship to God in resplendent glory, saying, my creator is here. All creation, all of creation, all of life for the glory of God. Everything you experience here, all of your joys are like a staring at a photograph. And then when we get to heaven, moving that photograph out of the way. You've seen that, that, that TV show where they, they have the house, they do the makeover. What's that called? Fixer-upper? Makeover? Whatever. The home makeover show where they, they, they take this old rundown place and then they, they, they park a picture of the old rundown place in front of it and then they reveal the new house. Same house, Amen. just made new. It'll be like you've taken the, the picture away and like, wow, that's the real thing. That's the, this is home. This is what it was meant to be. You think Niagara Falls is beautiful? Breathtaking even? It's just a, a photograph of the real version the eternal resurrected version. Church, my imagination runs wild when I consider the possibilities and the, the wonders that we will behold Amen. in the new creation, Amen. on the new heaven and the new earth. Amen. The way we see things today, I mean, and there's a lot of wonder in the world today. There's a lot to behold in the world that, that should make a... In the fact, the Bible says that, that creation itself should point us to God. No one has excuse not to worship God or not to know about God, even when the gospel hasn't been preached to them because creation itself declares the glory of God. And if creation in its fallen state declares the glory of God, imagine creation recreated, resurrected in its new state, declaring, not just declaring, boldly screaming the glory of God. Amen. I mean, one of my favorite things, my favorite sounds in the whole world is silence. Well, not really silence, but when you're outside and the, the wind blows and you hear, the, you hear it through the trees and just that, that quiet rustle. Now imagine that in heaven. It'll be like music. There'll be harmony and melody in it. I, just, I can just imagine it. Yeah. I can just imagine. Can you imagine it? Because if you can't imagine it, how can you get excited about it? And if you're not excited about it, how can you press forward to it? How can you face what this world has to throw at you and press for that if you can't imagine it? You've got ima you to get your mind wrapped around it. There is an exceeding glory waiting for us on the other side of this thing we call life. Amen. Amen. Valentine's Day was just a couple of days ago. A lot of roses being delivered. A lot of chocolate being delivered. You think roses are pretty? Where do you see the real thing? You think chocolate is sweet? Wait till you taste the real thing. This is just a picture. It's just a photograph of what's coming. Even the animals, you know, not, not just the inanimate things, even the animals will be recreated, renewed, in a resurrected, renewed state. All of creation, we talked about that last week, all of creation groans and waits for our resurrection so that it too can be resurrected. Amen. That's the Apostle Paul right there. That's how he understood resurrection. And if he understood it that way, we ought to understand it that way too. Amen. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to admit it's a, bit, it's a bit speculative, but it's informed speculation. 
We know that animals are different now than they were before the fall. This much we can know. We know this by a few clues that are given to us in the Scripture. But it's such a fun thing to think about. One of the most telling clues that we have is that in the Scripture, in the beginning, there were no carnivores before the fall. Everything, Adam and Eve, all the animals, they ate vegetation, they ate plants. They were vegetarians. And that does not appeal to me, but I just have to believe that if they were vegetarians and they had plants that tasted like fajitas, I have to believe that. There was some kind of fruit on some tree that tasted like barbecue or or good grilled steak or a hamburger. They had it. I have to believe that. (laughs) There's nothing in Scripture that tells me otherwise, so I'm going to hold on to that. But here's the thing. In Eden, before the fall, everything was was a vegetarian. We weren't given meat to eat until after. That was not allowed until after the fall. All the plants, I mean, all the animals, every beast of the field, and, and, and the humans, they were given plants to eat. Amen. That's what God said. You're given plants. And it wasn't until the fall that something happened, something radically changed, and now corruption has come in, and now we eat, we eat animals, we eat flesh. Amen. We weren't supposed to do that. Plants and fruit and nuts and berries, all that was given before the fall, and then after the fall, something changed, not just for Adam and Eve, but for all of creation. Did it ever strike you as odd that when the serpent spoke to Eve, y'all know the story, right? In, in the Garden of Eden, God said, don't eat of the fruit of this tree, because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the serpent comes up, and he speaks to Eve, and he says, did God tell you that you'll really die? Did he really say that? Did it ever strike anyone as odd that we are never given any indication that Eve found that surprising? That this snake was talking to her? So a snake crawls up to her and starts talking and she doesn't think twice about that. In fact, it's so not uncommon, it's so not a thing to her that it even tricks her. She even has this conversation with it and and reasons with this serpent. And this talking serpent is able to beguile her into sinning against God. Look at what it says in Genesis 3.1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, the serpent, said to the, he spoke to the woman and he said, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now the serpent was more subtle. Now that, that word subtle is better translated as being crafty or shrewd. That's just how language changes over time. That's what it means today. Crafty, shrewd, all right? Smart, sensible. That's what the Hebrew word means. And so he says the serpent was more crafty than the other creatures, more shrewd than the other creatures. So he was the smartest one. Not the only one that was smart, but the one that was the smartest, the one that was the most crafty. If the other animals weren't crafty, He would have just said the serpent was the crafty animal. But he didn't. He said the serpent is the most crafty animal. He's more crafty, which means the other animals were crafty too. So they were intelligent creatures. They were crafty creatures. Sensible, shrewd creatures. Perhaps they could even speak, which is why she didn't find it surprising that a snake would crawl up to her and say, did God not tell you? Perhaps they could reason and make decisions that weren't instinct-driven. Think about it this way. We have always assumed that the serpent spoke to Eve because 
Satan possessed a dumb animal and made it speak. Right? That's, that's what we've always assumed. Well, for one, the scripture never says that's what happened. We just, we just put that in there. We, we just assumed it. The Bible does call Satan the, the serpent of old, but it says that because he entered the serpent and used the serpent for his will to do what he wanted to accomplish, just the same way he entered Judas and he used Judas to betray Jesus. Amen. Judas was a willing participant. If you ask me, Satan possessing some helpless and dumb animal doesn't really fit the narrative of the text. Because God cursed the serpent for its part in the whole ordeal. Do you remember that? You're cursed. You're going to, fall, you're going to crawl on the ground and eat the dust of the earth. The serpent, he cursed him. Why would God curse an innocent animal? Is it possible, is it even likely perhaps, that the serpent, which was, again, the smartest, the craftiest of the animals, is it possible that he had chosen to cooperate with Satan? That he had reasoned and made a decision to follow Satan into tempting Eve? In the same way that Judas chose to cooperate with Satan? Is it possible that the certain serpent was beguiled into working with Satan to accomplish Satan's goals in the same way that Satan used the serpent to beguile Eve? In the same way that, that Judas was beguiled into working with Satan to accomplish his goals. It seems to me to make more sense that God would curse the serpent if the serpent were a willing participant. And not just some hapless puppet. Do you see what I'm saying? Amen. Amen. This is not the only example uh, in the Bible that we have of intelligent creatures. of God's created intelligent creatures, animals. It's fascinating to me. We see this serpent talking in Genesis, and no one is surprised by that. Why wouldn't they be surprised by that? Could it be that this was a common thing? Could it be that animals communicated? Look at in Revelation 8.13. No, 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 no. Numbers. Let's go to Numbers first. Numbers 22. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you about it. You remember Balaam's donkey? Everybody remember that? Balaam's donkey talking? So he's trying to go, and there's an angel standing trying to kill, going to kill Balaam if you go this way. And the donkey finally speaks up and says, what? Stop. You can't go that way. Is it possible that in that instance, God simply restored the donkey's ability to communicate for a brief time? Is it that God did something entirely new and had never been done before, something new and different in allowing that animal to speak? Or is it something that he restored to the animal that had been lost for a brief time? Revelation 18 or 8:13, we see an eagle talking. So we have the, in Genesis, we've got in Numbers, now we have at the end of days, at the end of time, in Revelation 8:13, uh, John says, "And behold, I beheld and heard an angel flying through, excuse me, an angel flying through the midst of heaven. It's an eagle in modern translation. An eagle in modern translation. That word that, that's used there, the Greek word is an eagle flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe into the inhabitants. So an eagle is flying in heaven. I'm using the King James Version here because that's what I speak, that's what I teach out of. But the, the, the modern translation is eagle. That's, that's, when you look up the Greek, what he wrote, that's the, that's the word. He's talking about an eagle. And because it's speaking, he calls it an angel. It's an eagle flying. We have an eagle speaking in the book of Revelation. Now, yes, that could be figurative language, but it doesn't have to be. It's interesting that the word of God that is used when God created man and made him a living soul in Genesis 2-7 is the same word that's used for animals. 
Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed in him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. It's also used for animals. Animals are nephesh. They're living souls. So am I suggesting that animals have souls? I bet you're wondering that. What is he saying to us this morning? Am I suggesting that at all? Well, they certainly don't have human souls. That, that much we know. Humans are the image bearers of God. This sets us apart and makes us infinitely more valuable both in the universe and in the eyes of God. It makes us unique among all of God's creations that we are the image bearers of God. Animals are not created in God's image. And they are not equal to humans in any sense. Nevertheless, there's a strong biblical case for animals having non-human souls. And when I say soul, I want you to think about like intelligence and, and personality, the, the ability to reason, that intangible part of what it is to be alive. Basically, before the fall, animals weren't just instinctual creatures. That's what I'm saying. I believe that in the resurrection and in the new creation, they will be restored to that. I think scripture bears that out. And maybe, possibly even given more agency than they had before. Because everything we made new and, and better. I, I admit, it's, it would be difficult to take that kind of thinking seriously if you hadn't studied the usage of the Hebrew and the Greek words. Nephesh and psyche. That's what the Hebrew word is translated into Greek, psyche. That's how we translate the word soul when referring to humans. The, the fact that these words are often, often used to talking about animals is very compelling evidence to me that they have non-human souls, that they were intended to have non-human souls. In fact, if you go back and you study historic Christianity, and I think that's important to understand, what, what did they believe before, before now? How, what has been the historical definition, the historical understanding? If you go back and you study that, this is what they historically believed. There's a book called Beyond Death in which uh, Gary Habermas and J.P. Moreland wrote. And in it they said that it wasn't until the 17th century Enlightenment that the existence of animal souls was even questioned in Western civilization. Did you know that? It wasn't until even the 17th century that that was even a question. Do they have souls? It was just assumed. Throughout all the church history, the classic understanding of living things has in, uh, included the doctrine that animals as well as humans have souls. Now again, they're not equal. They're not even close to being equal with humans. We have the name written in glory. God has uh, a private name for us that only He knows. Uh, we are human beings. We bear the image of God, our Creator. Nothing else in creation can say that. But what I am saying is that it's not a far-fetch, biblically speaking, to suggest that in the new earth, animals will be able to speak. Animals will be able to have intelligence. And they'll be able to serve humanity willingly and joyfully. And that, to me, that's a beautiful thing. Amen. I mean, it really is. Has anyone ever seen or read the Chronicles of Narnia? C.S. Lewis? Okay. In the, okay. First thing about C.S. Lewis, he is first and foremost a theologian. One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. All right? One of the greatest biblical thinkers that, that we have known in this age. All right? That's the first thing. And this, this theologian, who has a Christ-centered theology, decided to write some fiction, some fantasy fiction, and he came up with the Chronicles of Narnia. In the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, you have this, this magical kingdom that has been created by the lion Aslan, and now humans come into this magical kingdom. And all the animals in this kingdom have personalities. They can talk, 
And most of them, many of them wear clothes and they, they, they serve and they, they have personalities and they have intelligence and, and they're, like, they're like me and you. They're just animals. And so the human children come into this kingdom and Aslan says, I'm so glad you're here. I want to set you up now as kings. Aslan is lord of the land. And so he sets these humans up as kings in Narnia. And all the animals rejoice over it. They're so glad. We've got a king to serve. And they serve the, the humans willingly and, and joyfully. And I think that's so cool. Amen. That's so cool. With gladness. You know, the horse draws the carriage in Narnia with gladness. Without a whip. You know what I'm saying? I have a dog. My, I'm going to write a book one day, Things I Learned About God from My Dog. My dog is wonderful. She's just a dog. She's instinct-driven. But I look at her, and she looks at me, and it is clear on her face, all she wants is my approval. Amen. Amen. I can go out there and give her her treat, which is her, she loves those treats. We buy for her those little milk bones, what are they called? I don't know. But she loves those. I will put that thing in her mouth. She will drop it and set it my, as long as I'm standing there, that thing doesn't exist. If I'm in her presence, she don't want anything to do with it. She wants my attention. Amen. Imagine that resurrected, yes. renewed, with intelligence, the ability to communicate. I just think that's what we're looking for. I think that's what we're looking forward to. Might it be that the animals of Eden and, and those in the new creation will be some of our most loyal servants and friends in the new creation? I mean, seriously, have you ever wondered who we will be kings and rulers over in the new heaven and new earth? If everyone is a ruler or king, which the Bible says that we're going to be, who are we to rule over? Now listen, you, you don't have to buy any of that, okay? Any of that, what I just said about animals thinking and talking, you, you don't have to buy any of that. And it certainly shouldn't put us at odds in terms of being in Christian fellowship because it's not a gospel issue, it's not a salvation issue, it's not a core doctrine issue. And like I said, I can't prove it in Scripture. It's, it's just informed speculation on my behalf. Amen. But I do believe I can signal to it. I believe that I can follow the clues to it but again, at some point, it just, it just becomes speculation. So we don't have to agree on that. You don't have to buy into that. But what fun speculation is it? Amen. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it neat? I don't know if you've seen the movies the Chron or read the books, The Chronicles of Narnia, but what a neat thing that would be. I mean, take any Disney picture. The, what is it? The Cinderella story? Cinderella where the mice come and make her dress and all that? I mean, that's, it will be their joy to, to serve us. Who are we going to rule over? Speculation, but what fun speculation. And I think, I'm just saying, I don't think, I don't think it's far-fetched biblically. I really do think there's signposts in the Word to point to that. Amen. Speaking of kings and rulers, in our text this morning, there's mention of the kings of the earth. Revelation 21, 24. It says, And the nations of them which are saved will walk in the light of it. That's the city of God. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, into the city. Who are the kings? That's me and you. Amen. We're kings. We're kings of this new earth. Did you know one of Jesus' titles, y'all know, who is he? The king of kings and the... That's not a ceremonial title. That's really... He's the actual king of actual kings and the actual lord of, of actual lords. Amen. That means that he will be our king and we will be kings of cities. 
Look at the parable of the good steward in Luke, where he gives the ten talents to the ten, ten stewards, and he comes back, and the stewards that say, hey, I, I took your talent that you gave me, and I made ten of them out of it. He said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have rulership over ten cities. I took your talent and I made five talents out of it. I, I spent it and I invested it and I worked with it. I, I took what you gave me and I made much of it. And he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have rule over five cities. But then the one who buried it, he didn't do anything with it. Look at, man, look at the, the implication of that. Okay, this one had been given a talent. He had been given something by the king. We've been given a gift of salvation by the king. But the, when he came back, the king said, what have you done with what I gave you? And he said, I didn't do anything with it. Amen. I sat on it because I knew you were an austere man and you, you reaped where you didn't sow. He said, well, you, you've just judged yourself. If you knew that, why didn't you do something with it? So he took from him to give to the others. And they were all surprised by it. But Lord, he has, the others already have ten talents. Amen. And he said, surely I tell you that if you don't have anything to him who has little, I'll even take that and give it to him who has much because of the work that we do here. Amen. We'll be given cities to rule as kings in the new earth. This new Jerusalem is it's like no city you've ever seen in your entire life. What a city it'll be. All the kings of the earth are going to bring their glory and honor into the city. We'll come and we'll bring artwork and we'll bring music and literature and sculptures and, and decadent foods and we'll carry the riches and the wealth into the city all to His glory, all to lay at His feet to worship Him. Amen. Amen. Look at Revelation 21, 26. I'm just talking about the new Jerusalem for just a minute. It says, and the, the angel is measuring the city. It says, the city liveth four, lieth four square. That's four square, um, four sides equal. And the length is as large as the breadth, and the measure of the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. And the length and the breadth and the height are equal. So it's a 12,000 furlongs square and 12,000 furlongs tall. Amen. I did the math. 12,000 furlongs, and some of your Bibles may say stadia, 12,000 stadia, it's the same thing, is 1,400 miles. Mm -hmm. Now here's the perspective. Here's a map of the United States. Michaela, would you put that up there for me? That's the U.S., okay? Now, if you do the next one, put Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, on top of the U.S., that's what you got. That's 1,400 miles square. You go from Canada to Mexico and from Birmingham, Alabama to Phoenix, Arizona. That is a lot of land. Amen. Amen. That is huge. For a city, that's a city. That's one city, the holy city, right there. Huge. New Jerusalem would stretch and cover almost the whole United States. Here's another perspective. Put the other one up there, the next one. That gives you a 3D perspective. I know that's, <laughs> but that's, that's what I would look, that's how, that's 1,200, 12,000 furlongs tall. That's what it would look like on the earth. Isn't that crazy? Amen. It's almost beyond our ability to imagine or conceive. I did even more math. So just bear with me for a little bit, if you don't mind, while I indulge my, my curiosity. If you're worried about cramped spaces in heaven, don't be. Because as you can see, there's a whole lot of room in, in the holy city. And that's just the holy city. Forget, never mind the new earth and all, all that we'll have to enjoy and all the room and the wonder we'll have to enjoy there. That's just the holy city. 
if every level, now, if it's going to be that tall, surely there are levels. Now, again, I'm speculating here, but surely there are levels. There's stories, floors, whatever you want to call them. But if we give every level a comfortable 12-foot height, that's not 8 feet, that's, that's 12 feet. You know, most ceilings are, what, 10 feet? We're going to go 12. We're going to give it a comfortable 12-foot height. We give every level of this new city 12 feet. you got 600,000 stories. Now, I did some more math. It's almost beyond the capacity to comprehend. 600,000 levels at 1,400 square miles each give us a total living space. Are you ready? Total living space. Are you ready for some square footage? 23 quadrillion, 417 trillion, 856 billion square feet. Yeah. That's... I'm just saying, if you're worried about cramped spaces, you don't got to be. You've got plenty of room to spread out, all right? Billions of people can live in this city. And what a thing. What a thing. It's just beyond the ability almost. But yet, in the new creation, when we see that city, it'll be like home. Amen. Amen. People are like, ah, this is where I was made to be. This, this, is, this is what all that was about right here. I'm so glad it'll be familiar. There's some marvelous things waiting for us. And the best of all is that Christ will be at the center of all of it. He'll be the reason for all of it. He'll be the beginning and the end of all of it. And we should be excited about what awaits us there. Amen. I know that there are people who are not very excited about going to heaven. I, I, I didn't used to be, not when I was a kid. I had this wrong impression of it. People who believe in Jesus, people who follow Christ, but their idea of heaven is so unbiblical that their affections for it are diminished. There are people who are facing death, even an early death, and they aren't ready to go yet. You know, it's like you're at a, at a party at somebody's house, and, and there are several friends and relatives there, and the, it's a good party, you know, you're, you're, you're having an okay time, but you're just kind of waiting for the real fun to start, waiting for it to really kick off and really get going. And then all of a sudden, one of your friends comes to you, who's your ride home, and says, man, i got to go, i got to take you home. And I don't want to leave the party yet, but it's my ride, i got to go. So you get in the car, and you go home, and you walk out of the car, and you go up to your door at your house, and you're alone, and you open the door, and you walk in, you turn the light on, and you see that in the house, waiting for you, is all your friends and all your family that you haven't seen in years. And they just erupt with joy when you walk through the door. They just erupt with cheer. And you're, you, you, you left one party to go to a party that's all about you. It's all about So you walk in, and the more you enjoy that party, and you, you, you talk with those old friends and those old family members, the longer you stay there, and the longer you enjoy it, the doorbell rings, and guess what? It's one of your friends from the old party. And they show And then another one shows up. And then another one shows up. And the party just gets bigger. And it's a wonderful homecoming. Amen. That's what Amen. dying is. For the believer. That's what dying is for the one who is safe in Christ. Amen. I read a story of a five-year-old girl who was hospitalized. And she found out she was going to die because she had aggressive form of cancer. And the doctor told her that she began to cry. And even though she loved Jesus and she wanted to be with him, she's five years old, you know, she, she didn't want to leave her family behind. I remember this was a real struggle of mine growing up. 
You know, I'm like, Lord, I don't want to, I don't want to, I mean, I'm supposed to want to go to heaven, right? But I don't want to go because I want to, I, I, I want to see what's left for me. I want children and I want grandchildren. I want all those wonderful things that you have for me. But I was, I wanted this more than I wanted that. And, and, and the mother did a very wise thing to try to talk with her daughter and comfort her through this, this struggle she was having. She didn't want to leave for fear of leaving her family behind. And so she asked her daughter to step through the door into another room and close the door behind her. So she did, she stepped into the other room, she closed the door behind her, and then one at a time, her entire family started coming through the door to join her in the other room. And her mother explained, this is what dying is for the Christian. You will go ahead to heaven and you will rest there and then all of your family will join you one at a time. Sometimes, maybe more than one at a time. Who knows? You'll have friends show up. They'll all join you. The rest of the family will follow you there. And the little girl understood. She was going to be the first one to go through death's door. But eventually the rest of her family would follow, probably one at a time, joining her by her side. That's beautiful. Amen. That, is, that is beautiful. Amen. How, how does the world face death without that? Yes. This is why the Christian can look death in the face and smile. Amen. That's why we can look at, at, at the end of our mortality and, and smile. I, I'm not going to lie to you. We, we should not glorify or romanticize death because Jesus didn't. In fact, Jesus wept over it in, in John 11. And for every beautiful story of people who peacefully slip into eternity, there are other stories, just like the one that we witnessed this week with this, that poor, tortured soul. Confused and shrunken people, wasting away mentally and physically, and they're leaving behind exhausted and confused, grief-stricken loved ones. It is appointed to every man once to die. Everybody, it's appointed to us once to die. And unless Christ returns in our lifetime, it is certain that all of us, everyone I know, everyone I love, will die. Death is painful. It is an enemy. Don't mistake that. But for those who know Jesus, death is the final pain. It is the last enemy. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Don't let a day go by without anticipating the new world that Christ is preparing for us. God loves those who are heaven-bound, but he is proud of those who are heaven-minded. Hebrews eleven 16, I'll leave you with this. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly country. Wherefore, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. Those who desire a better country, God's not ashamed to be called your. He is proud of you because he made a place for you. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come quickly. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for that blessed hope you've given us. God, I know I'm feeble and weak in my efforts to do it justice. I just pray, Father, that something that I have said has resonated. 
that a seed is planted and that we, we spark a, just a hope and an expectation, anticipation of, of what you have waiting for us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Send us out of this place safely and bring us back at the appointed time, keeping us in your perfect will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.